Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. As you all know, I've got my new book coming out. So in this episode today, I want to talk more with one of my friends, Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, about couples relationships and really using her expertise in attachment theory and emotion-focused therapy to understand better what triggers us in relationships and how can we soothe those triggers? How can we better understand what attachment style we're in and how that responds and correlates with our partner's attachment style? So this is quite a long episode, but please stay with us to at the end because Tracy will give you a beautiful permission at the very end. So let me introduce my friend, Dr. Tracy, a little bit further. Dr. Tracy Dalgleish helps individuals and couples navigate the challenges we all face in our relationships and within ourselves to create a more meaningful life through therapy, wellness seminars and her work outside of the therapy room. For over 15 years, Dr. Dalgleish has provided direct clinical services as well as researching, writing and speaking about relationships. She provides psychological assessments, diagnosis and individual and couple therapy for a variety of difficulties, including depression, anxiety, postpartum difficulties, stress and burnout and relationship difficulties. Committed to making what she does more accessible, Dr. Tracy is the host of the podcast I'm Not Your Shrink, where she dives deeper into clinical knowledge and research in a relatable and informal way. She also offers e-learning if you prefer to learn on the go, including an online community to help women and couples strengthen their relationships. A mother of two young children and the owner of Integrated Wellness, a mental health clinic in Ottawa and Ontario in Canada, she understands what it means to juggle the full load of being a mother and a professional woman. And I've connected with Dr. Tracy over Instagram because she's got a beautiful community there where she shares lots of helpful, tangible, accessible tips around couples' relationships. And that's why I wanted to do a deeper dive together with Dr. Tracy as she's been reading through my upcoming book, The Lasting Connection. And that's where we realised we really are quite kindred spirits coming at this from slightly different theoretical frameworks, but working with couples in quite similar ways. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this one. So do stay with us till the end and let's dive deep into what makes couples tick. So I'm really, really pleased to have my friend, Dr. Tracy Dalgleish joining us today. And as you've heard from her very impressive introduction, she is very well familiar with working with couples and relationships, which is what we're going to dive into deep today. So first off, welcome, Tracy. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Michaela. I am so glad to be sitting with you again. I truly loved having you over on my podcast home. And I just, I love having this opportunity to connect with you and have these conversations that really fill us up. Yes, exactly. And and despite that, it's funny how we uh, just moments before we started pressing record here, we both sitting here feeling really <laughs> nervous, our stress systems going like, oh my God. Um, and it's that classic yeah. imposter syndrome, isn't it? But, you know, uh-huh. both being experts on couples, we're just going to have a chat about couples. So today yeah. I hope to really deep on things like attachment and what, you know, what gives us a, 
a deeper meaningful connection with our partners by understanding more of our triggers and how to calm those down. So I hope this can be a really rich conversation. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's think a little bit about who you are and what you do and a little bit more about yourself so the listeners get to know you. Yes, absolutely. I I am a clinical psychologist and couples therapist, as you've already said. I like to also identify the other roles I play because that's my work hat. I'm also a wife. I am a mom. I'm a daughter. I'm the youngest sister. And when I thought about sharing my experience with you and the listeners, I thought I would start by sharing how I've just always been curious about our internal experiences and how what happens inside of us really impacts how we interact with our world. And I have this memory of myself. I must have been in my early teens and my sister sitting on my bed with me and she's five years older and she's asking me, am I dating this person or not? Are we dating? We've been hanging out and what do I do? And I remember simply saying to her, just ask, why don't you just tell that person how you feel and what you want and need? And I think this really started my journey into understanding how we work in our relationships, how we share our feelings and needs, and how we connect with other people. I was initially on the med school track to psychiatry. And actually, in my first year after touring hospitals and consulting with other medical professionals, I realized that it wasn't exactly what I wanted. So I started exploring more about human behavior and psychology. And I fell into attachment theory and couples in my third and fourth year of my undergrad. And I haven't looked back from it. And I remember, you know, being the young age of 21 and going to my supervisor after reading months of attachment literature and saying to him at the time, I'm good. I'm really good. I'm solid. I am independent. And he said to me, Tracy, independence is fine. Interdependence is better. And that was a really big moment for me of just realizing that, you know, so often in our world, we try to teach people to be independent and on their own and empowered. And while there is nothing wrong with that, what is truly important is being able to rely on other people and turn to them and trust them and develop secure and healthy bonds. And that ultimately led me into my PhD, where I spent years researching attachment and emotionally focused couples therapy. And Michaela, I know you can relate to this, but one of the things that fascinates me the most sitting in front of the couples I work with is that while I hear them arguing about you know, whether it's the dishes or the kids or the boundaries with the in-laws or if it's something about infidelity, whatever those moments are, I just hear the underneath music from them. And those questions are often the, are you there for me? Do I matter? Am I important to you? And so often we lose being able to connect at that level. Mm, that's really powerful. That actually is something like an echo reverberating from underneath it, that you with your trained ear can listen to, it can hear, and it's sort of resonating wider into those deeper deeper issues that then can manifest itself as day-to-day niggles. So I know that you share posts like, it's not about the socks. I love <laughs> yeah. that post that you write. It's never about the socks. It's about what the, what the socks mean. So right. I really want to dive deeper into that with you because obviously with your background and your research around attachment 
and emotion focused therapy I think that's something that's going to be really relevant for a lot of listeners because I get frequent questions about attachment styles what is an attachment style uh-huh. and how does that how does that matter for couples you know why why is it meaningful for us to learn what our attachment style is so let's just bring it right back and strip it down to what is attachment what is attachment style Absolutely. So attachment theory has been such a pivotal piece in how we understand love and human connection. And attachment is the notion that we all have these innate needs for emotional contact and security, and that these attachment needs are healthy and adaptive. So I don't tend to use words like overdependent or codependency, right? It's the healthy interdependent that's important. So I can't emphasize enough that we all have these basic needs for closeness and security. And through our early meaningful relationships and social development, we build ways of thinking and feeling. So I want you to think the listeners think of, you know, what's in your mind as if it's like a roadmap and we call them cognitive and effective schemas. And these represent ourselves. They represent other people and it influences how we reach for others and also how we provide care. So before I go any further, what I think is important to remember with attachment, with the attachment system, is that it's not just about what I do to seek reassurance and comfort from someone else, but it's also about the other person and then how they respond to me. Hmm. So I think it's important that we talk about the four S's of secure attachment. And, you know, various researchers talk about different things from different ways. You know, Dr. Sue Johnson talks about the ARE conversation of, are you there for me? This is from Dan Siegel, and he talks about safety, secure, seen, and soothed. So we all need safety in our relationships, and this is beyond physical safety. This is emotional safety. This is knowing that I can turn to you and that you will not take my words and mock me or make fun of me or put me down. That emotional safety is so important with our significant other. We need security. What does it mean to feel secure? Secure means that I can turn to you and know that I am worthy, that I have my own thoughts and feelings and opinions and desires, and that I can turn to you and your thoughts and feelings are just as important. And I can recognize that there's space for both of us to have this experience and we can be in this together. We're trusting of each other. Seen is this idea that we see our partners. It's not just about kind of the nodding. You know, I think of our phones immediately around this and how much our phones have come to play in our lives that we're no longer seeing the moment-to-moment shifts in our partner because we're distracted by our phone. So if you turn to your partner and say, my goodness, today was a hard day, and if they don't see the expression of pain on your face, are they missing you? Are they seeing what you are truly experiencing in that moment? And then the last one is soothed. When I turn to you, will you comfort me? Will you hold me? Will you tell me it's okay? You know, sometimes our partners are not available and we can do the mental soothing, the internal soothing, which is kind of like holding a picture of your partner in your mind, that mental image of if they were here with me, they would tell me it's okay. They would give me a hug. Hmm. So we can actually internalize that even though our partners aren't obviously omnipresent, they aren't always available to us because they're human too that's you know it would be unrealistic pressures to put on our relationship to assume that our partners would always 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 meet our emotional or physical needs every single time is that fair to say absolutely that and that is so important to acknowledge is that sometimes and that i mean that would be kind of the the, the dependency of the unhealthy level of thinking that our partners can give us everything that we need 
And there are times where a partner might have to say, I can't, I can't hold you right now. I know that today was so hard for you. I see that you're experiencing this right now. And if I don't finish this deadline, my job's on the line. But the thing that a secure partner will do is they'll say, tomorrow, love, I've got you and I'm going to make time for you. And let's make sure we spend time talking about this situation tomorrow. So it's, it's the, I see you, I see you're struggling. I can't do that right now, but we can come back to that. Hmm. So it's how you effectively and empathetically delay the soothing. So you still see us and it's still validating that they're feeling what mm-hmm. they're feeling, but Again, not not expecting miracles that you can constantly show up for the other person because your partner has a life too with their own challenges and shortcomings and struggles and things that are affecting them. And I really like how you talk about interdependence because it allows us to actually not put blame and shame on ourselves for needing to lean on someone Mm -hmm. to actually turn towards our partner in in times of hardship. And that's okay to feel you know, I, I need you to support me right now because it, it's about that turn taking. I think that has been such a huge shift with attachment theory coming into our understanding, not just in our romantic relationships, but also with our relationships with our children, of being able to know that hugging your children is not going to create them to be unhealthy or to develop codependency, right? It, mm-hmm. it is healthy and it's a core need that we all have. Let, let me share what a model of accessibility and responsiveness looks like. And mm. we can start with that trigger because I know that is often a really great place to start with. It, you know, we can think of, we get triggered all the time in our relationship, in our world. And triggers mean, you know, something has stimulated our senses that perhaps pulls upon a memory or a need and we start to feel a rush of emotion. So what happens is that we're triggered in some way we experience anxiety and stress. So let's say, for example, you had a really hard day and you're really upset. So you text your partner and you reach for your partner for closeness and comfort and your partner is accessible and responsive. That helps to reduce the anxiety and stress and then you can continue back in your everyday life until you're triggered again. And then you reach for your partner, your partner responds, they're accessible and then the anxiety decreases. And sometimes we even do this in terms of an internalization. So if our partner doesn't text us back, say, for example, if I'm anxious or stressed, I text my partner, they don't respond back to me, I can soothe myself and say, oh, right, he's had a busy day today, he can't respond, but I know that they're there. Or maybe the example of I'm upset by something and I say, hey, you didn't text me back. And my partner can say, oh, I see, I didn't realize you needed that response back. And I see how upset you are. I've got you, like I I can soothe you, I can support you in this moment. The challenge is that when our attachment figures, our partners are not reliably accessible and supportive, our ability to securely attach rather is undermined. And so that's when insecurity develops. And Mm. we are no longer able then to turn to our, our figures, our partners to help regulate that distress And we have to find some other way to do that. And there are really only two other ways to do that. So the one is we make our feelings really big. So we hyperactivate our needs. So that looks like there's a trigger. It starts out the same way. There's a trigger. We experience anxiety and stress. We reach for our partner for that closeness and comfort to be soothed. 
Our partner is not accessible and responsive. And that leads us to experience increased anxiety and stress, and we feel insecure, and we continue to reach for them and reach for them until somehow either we withdraw and we shut down that anxiety and stress, or our partner then moves into doing something that can reassure us. And oftentimes in our partnerships, what this looks like is I like the analogy of knocking on the door. Sue Johnson uses that one a lot. It sounds like, hello, hello. Are you even listening? Do I even matter to you? If I truly matter to you, you would just text me back. And it's like you're upping the ante. But deep down, there's a lot of fear and anxiety and doubt that you are lovable and you are worthy and that your partner truly cares about you. Because mm, it's what that response means about you and your worth and your value. Um, why aren't they spending the time just texting me back? So how does that show up for couples where there's perhaps one person who's anxiously attached, if we think of that attachment style? As in, we're thinking about you describing this situation here, it's almost like this this dance around meeting needs, being mm -hmm. responsive and and when this anxiously kind of when this anxious need uh, arises, like it does for all of us, we all have a need for comfort and security. That's not something we want to kind of link the word anxious to. That's just human, right? We all have these needs yeah. to be reassured. Um, I'm wondering when that need isn't met, when the partner is non-responsive. You know, do you see that happening more when when kind of maybe one partner is avoidantly attached and the other one is anxiously attached? I think that can depend. Um, you know, that's the most common thing that we see is that when the other partner is avoidant, and I'll talk about that one in a second, what that looks like. But if your other partner is more likely to shut down and mm. they're not emotionally available, they're not responsive, then the other person continues to press and press and press, right? Of course, because they're trying to get seen. So mm. it, it might start out by saying something like, you didn't text me back. And the partner says, okay, yes, you needed a text back. And then they don't feel seen. So then they press again. Well, am I like, if I was important to you, you would take time for me. And the other person says, don't be ridiculous. You're important to me. And the other person still doesn't feel soothed. And so they press more and they're looking for more of that reassurance and comfort because inside they really doubt that lovability for themselves. So then what we, we keep doing is we press and press and press. And what happens then, I guess, I mean, maybe we just take a step back and strip it right back to the types of attachment styles. So for the listeners who are not familiar with avoidantly attached or anxiously attached or securely attached, maybe you can kind of try to describe the categories a little bit. And what are the signs of someone you know being in each category? What kind of the, the signs of an adult today being anxiously attached or, or so on? Absolutely. So before I do that, let me tell you about the other strategy, because I think that one will really help to map on what the attachment mm. strategies look like. So the first one is that hyperactivating. So I'm making my need really big. But the other way of coping with this is by deactivating our need. So it's the same experience. We have a trigger. We experience anxiety and stress. We reach for our partner for closeness and comfort. And that's important that we still do that in some way, even if we tend to be more avoidant. But the partner is not accessible or responsive. We still experience this increase in our anxiety. But what this partner does instead, someone who deactivates their needs and is more avoidant, so I'll get to that in just a moment, is that they minimize their emotion and need and they create a distance between the self and other. Mm. And that's how they suit themselves. So in one area, someone is hyperactivating and making their needs really big as a way to cope with that distress of not being seen and connected with their partner. And on the other side, the person is deactivating, so shutting down. 
And this maps onto what the four styles look like. So security. So someone who is secure, they have a positive view of themselves. They believe that they are worthy. They believe that they are trustworthy, that they are lovable, and they also view other people positively. So they can lean on them that when I turn to you, you will support me. And that, that's that secure model, the secure attachment. But what happens is that then preoccupied or anxious attachment, the anxious style, that individual has a negative view of the self. So they don't feel lovable. They doubt their worthiness and whether they can be cared for and trusted. And the other person is viewed as positive so that they overseek the approval from the other person to show that they are truly worthy. And then when we look at someone who is more avoidantly attached, so that's the avoidance. Um, the other word we use in the literature is dismissing. And that is someone who protects themselves from other people. So they have a positive view of themselves. They view themselves as worthy and lovable, but they try to keep away from being hurt from other people. So this is someone who minimizes their emotions and needs, and they distance themselves from other people. One analogy that you can think of for someone who's more avoidantly attached would be like James Bond, where he, you know, he has one night stands with women, but doesn't allow himself to get, get close with them emotionally. And when we also think of the research, research shows that of samples studied, men tend to be higher in avoidant attachment. If we think of how society has raised our men, we've taught them, don't feel sad, don't feel pain, shut down your emotions. And, and that teaches you to not sit with emotions and to link that to what you need from other people. And then the last ones, there's four attachment styles that we can look at in the research. The last one is the fearful or disorganized. And this is someone who has a negative model of themselves and a negative model of the other person. And this is an individual who doubts their lovability, but is also very fearful of leaning on other people. Uh, someone who identifies as fearful, avoidant, or fearfully attached would have probably been emotionally and physically abused. And so caregivers who are supposed to be safe are not viewed as safe. And it is the longing to be loved and to be accepted, but then fearing that the other person will hurt you. Hmm. So keeping people at arm's length, but then really wanting to desperately draw them close and yes. feeling very upset if being left or, or abandoned. Yes, that fear of abandonment, but but needing to be close with others. Mm -hmm. And that can obviously show up a lot. I know we, we have to kind of acknowledge that that's not the most common attachment style, mm -hmm. but that that can have a huge ripple effect in relationships. I've, I've definitely worked with couples where that's been one of the partners has had that. And it, it does create a lot of chaos because of that need to still feel safe, but not being quite sure of how to hold the other person close. It either feels too close or not close at all. And it can be really difficult to kind of get the, the distance right there, get the level of interdependence right. right without it becoming unhealthy. So I think that's a really helpful distinction, Tracy, of thinking of these different categories and how that shows up. I guess when you're thinking about how you work with couples then, um, how, how these attachment styles show up, you've given us some really good indications of the different ways of responding when we get a need from our partners. Are there any other ways we should know about this, of how this kind of the attachment styles can create stuck points for the couples that you, that you see? Yeah. So let's think of how we match up then and who it is that we, we find in terms of our partners. And we know in some ways that when we choose our partner, we are in some way 
choosing someone that we're trying to work out some of our own unmet needs, right? Or it's, it's like the repeating patterns that we choose a partner that although we hope that they're different from our parents, that, you know, perhaps they might communicate more at the beginning or they like certain things. Um, but if your parents were perhaps emotionally unavailable, that oftentimes we choose a partner who is familiar, who may also ultimately become emotionally unavailable. And what we tend to see as a common pattern, and we see this in the relationship cycles that is talked about in emotionally focused couples therapy, is one of the most common patterns we see is blaming, pursuing with the withdrawing partner. And if we map that onto attachment styles, it looks like someone who has a more anxious attachment has paired up with someone who is more avoidant in their attachment style. And I love the way Stan Tatkin talks about this in his book. He says that someone who has an anxious attachment style is like a wave and they come crashing towards you and they're trying to be soothed in that way. So when, when they're struggling, they want to come close to you. But someone with an avoidant attachment style is like an island. They're good on their own. They don't, they don't want them to come crashing close to them. They're, they're good. But you can imagine how a wave and an island coming together can create a lot of distress. So then the anxious partner is looking to connect and to feel important and to share emotions because that helps them feel good. Whereas the other partner is more inclined to shut down because emotions are overwhelming to them. Mm, so powerful. And it helps us make sense without blaming or shaming why each person responds so differently. Because I, I find that is something that's crucial in the couples I see, that having that understanding of the other person's perspective and viewpoint. because. None of us have chosen our attachment styles. None of us have chosen our early upbringings. And how do you how do you work with couples with that? You know, when they get stuck, you know, one person being the island, one person being the crashing wave. Neither of them having chosen that, mm -hmm. and they have different needs. Maybe some different unmet needs from earlier um, experiences in their childhood as well. How do you how do you help couples with this? What are your top tips? Yeah, I, I mean, first, I, I, I want to just recognize what, what you talk about in your book, and that is about the fuel in your fire model of flammability in relationships, right? That this, our attachment is part of our fuel, if I'm understanding it right, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So Tracy kindly is giving a little, um, little prompt from my book, The Lasting Connection, which I talked to Tracy about on her podcast. I'm not your shrink. So if you want to dive deeper into that, then listen to it was a second series, episode eight, perhaps around yes. compassion. Yeah. Um, because yes, that's how I think of sort of the fuel is what you bring with you to the fire and the things that makes you more or less flammable together with your, uh, your, your partner, how you ignite on each other. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think that it empowers us. And, and as you're saying, it, it builds compassion for the other person rather than seeing the other person as being on the other team. One of the first things I talk about with, with couples is, is about becoming on the same team, working shoulder to shoulder, that it is not your partner necessarily that is the problem, but it's this dance. It's the interaction that's happening between you two. That is, if we want to label something as the bad guy, that's the bad guy, not your partner. Neither one of you are the identified patient, but rather it's the cycle that takes over. And so we need to first be able to learn to get out of that cycle. And part of being able to do that is by seeing what your partner does as a way to create safety and by pausing that cycle and stepping out of it and stepping away from it. And what we can do when, when we also see our partner start to struggle, whether we see them shutting down or upping the ante, is that we can also begin to understand, right, this is how my partner finds safety. It's not about me. And 
we often do this piece around internalizing our partner's behaviors that particularly when a partner shuts down and walks away, it's incredibly painful, particularly for the anxiously attached person, that it is so painful when their partner shuts down. And if that person can remind themselves, this is their coping strategy, this is what they do when they get overwhelmed and flooded, it can be a way of stepping back and giving permission and compassion to our partners. But what's important is that it doesn't mean that we don't work on our own strategies in order to shift into a healthier bond. And so what's important is that if you are the partner that tends to shut down and step back, one of the things we want to work on is helping you to self-soothe, learning how to breathe through those tough interactions, learning to downregulate, learning to you know take deep breaths, push your feet into the ground when things start to get really stressful so that you can stay in a conversation. And at the same time, what is really important for the partner who tends to be, uh, who tends to deactivate their needs more is that I like to help them start to share their needs and to express themselves to their partner. So taking those risks of sharing their thoughts and feelings to their partner. So if, for example, their partner says, you never help out, perhaps it's a more critical partner saying, you never help out, you're never there for me, why can't you help? It would be important then for the person who's more withdrawn and shut down to start to say, it doesn't help me when you criticize and I feel like a failure or I feel like I'm not good enough or I feel like I can never get it right. And so once there is this sense of safety of being able to stop that negative cycle you get into, then being able to say, hey, I have feelings in this relationship too. This is my experience and I need you to be able to see that. And let me just go back for a second, because I think something that's really important is that we have to be able to recognize what kind of cycle we get into. And the research shows that there are three common cycles. The first one is we get into a blame, blame position. And that sounds like, you know, one partner says you didn't do the dishes. The other one says, oh, you're going to pick on me for the dishes. Well, you didn't help out with the kids last night. And it's a continuous upping the ante and one upping each other. The challenge with that cycle is that neither partner ends up hearing each other or seeing what the other person is experiencing. The second one that I already mentioned is the pursue-withdraw cycle. Uh, Sue Johnson talks about that as the uh, polka dance, and that is as I step towards you, you step back, or as I come close to you, you step away from me. But I blame you and I criticize you because you withdraw, and the other person says, I withdraw and shut down because you blame and criticize me. And underneath that cycle, there are often two stories. And the partner who blames and and criticizes is someone who's trying to see if they're important to their partner, where the person who withdraws and shuts down wonders if they can ever get it right. And the third one is the freeze and flee cycle. This is often where both partners do not share their struggles, do not turn to the other person with what's difficult in the relationship. They're often the couples that will say, oh, no, we never fight. We're good. Because there's a lot of anxiety underneath that fear of maybe losing each other, fear of how to talk about difficult moments, fear that they won't be able to get through fights, or one partner has just completely shut down and is not engaging in the relationship. Mm, so powerful. Thank you. And you, and I really like that the way you think of these cycles as the problem, that it's not you're not the problem, your partner isn't the problem, it's the pattern, it's the dynamic, it's the cycle that you got into that is the problem. So for the listeners who might be thinking, oh, that is me to a T, you know, I'm cycle number one or I'm cycle number two, et cetera. You know, I know you're probably uh, going on to talking about some more helpful things that we can do once we recognize the pattern we get caught up in. 
Yeah. And the, the most powerful thing that any couple can do just even within yourself, and it just takes one person to stop. And that is to be able to pause. If you notice that you are getting triggered, that you are getting overwhelmed, just being able to step back. And we know that when we get into the space of being overwhelmed, uh, we use the word dysregulated, which means that, you know, we feel overwhelmed, maybe confused. We can't think straight. Maybe we start to shake our leg. We're starting to feel anxious. We're crossing our arms. You know, I actually notice that in, in my office when partners become overwhelmed and flooded, uh, it's often the male partner. John Gottman talks about this in his research where he hooks mm -hmm. partners, heterosexual couples up to physiological markers and theirs usually goes through the roof compared to their female partner when they're talking about something stressful. What I notice is that the male partner will start to look away and look up at the ceiling and their leg might start to shake. And you can imagine as a partner trying to connect, if you see your partner doing that, that is a signal to your brain of danger, danger, I'm not important here. I put in that context also what you said earlier of how we teach young boys to grow up into being men, that we don't right. teach them, or not you and I personally, because you and I both know what we want to teach boys, but actually the toxic masculinity that's so pervasive in society that teaches men to bottle things up and not talk about them. Right. No wonder that they get flooded when they're faced with strong emotions from their female partner, if it, we're talking about a hetero couple. Oh, absolutely. And I think of my own son, he's five right now. And he, you know, anger is big and, and it should be mm -hmm. as a kid, right? You know, something didn't go the way you wanted. You don't want the banana for a snack, whatever that might be. And I've really taken it as my job, of course, all of our jobs to be able to teach him what to do with that anger and how healthy it is to feel anger instead of bottling it up. I have a list on his door of things he can do. Initially, he was slamming his door and when he sat down and talked about it and came up with some other strategies of breathing, taking a sip of water, being able to do some counting, all those mindfulness strategies that I know you and I both talk about and mm. letting him know anger is healthy. Anger is normal. And then at the same time, when he's sad, and I see this with the grandparents and other people. And it's really interesting because I have a daughter, so I have both, but I come from a family of two girls. So when my son fell and he was younger, I would hear a lot of, all right, get up, brush it off. You've got it. Keep going. And with my daughter, it was a, oh no, you fell. Are you okay? You're sad. Yes, of course you're sad. And I have intentionally been sitting with my son who has big emotions as most kids do. And when he's sad, I am making so much space for that sadness. Because then when he grows up, he knows it's okay to be sad. It's okay to share sadness. It's okay to sit in sadness and let others be there for me in those moments. Mm, absolutely. Because so much of that sadness, those always sometimes call us softer or more vulnerable emotions sitting underneath anger. Uh -huh. uh, for a lot of men, anger feels like the more acceptable emotion to express. So you might yeah. see that in partnerships where they might be irritable or cross with their partner, but they don't actually share things like I fear losing you or I'm right. sad that this happened um, because it's too, it's just too deep. It's too emotional, too vulnerable. So I'm really glad that you're doing everything you're doing for the couples today, but they're all already in their adulthood, also doing everything you can with the next generation. Because <laughs> I do really hope that the next generation of men won't be as closed off. Yeah, I sometimes do feel a bit despair around that in hetero couples when I work with men who've had that sort of upbringing. So we have to do a lot of compassion work around the way you know that that man was raised and how he can start to think about 
almost tolerating emotions or stepping into it, labeling emotions, naming what they are and how can I start to express things that aren't uh-huh. just, you know, I'm, I'm cross or I'm pissed off. Right. Actually, there are other things. I feel disappointed or I feel um, un- uneasy or I feel anxious. That There's a lot of things that are, you know, just about emotional labeling as well. So really powerful stuff so far. And I hope that people have learned new things about attachment theory, knowing that actually just just want to reinforce again what you said, that this is normal stuff, that we are built this way because uh-huh. we're human. We do need to lean on each other. We do need to depend on each other. But it's about having that turn taking of interdependence of leaning back and forth that we are there for each other taking turns so much of what you're saying tracy is also around validating and just really making sure we see our partners taking the extra time and that's so difficult with all the distractions we have in today's modern society but also with the unrealistic expectations we have and obviously those who um, listen to this podcast quite regularly know that i often talk about perfectionism or kind of unrealistic expectations and pressures we put on ourselves what do you think the way that we kind of have expectations today, maybe kind of hoping that a couple is supposed to be perfect. You know, how do you think that interferes with couples' relationships today? I'm just thinking of things like rom-coms, like, you know, in Jerry Maguire, this is something I came across in four different couples therapy books when I was doing my research, that phrase of you complete me. Mm. Um, do you think that that sets unrealistic views around <laughs> couples' relationships being perfectly kind of meeting our needs all the time? Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I can still hear the Secret Garden song in in my head from that scene on Jerry Maguire. Our media absolutely creates unrealistic views of what partnerships looks like. And it's it's damaging. I mean, even if we think of social media and, and the scrolling that we're doing, it's the highlight reel. We don't see images of the couple with the red eyes after staying up till 2 a.m. trying to work out this feeling that they're having and continuing to fight through it. We don't see those images. And if we don't have those messages that relationships are hard, you are supposed to struggle in your relationships, then you start to internalize this. Uh, And especially people with high expectations of themselves, they start to think, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this? What's wrong with us and our relationship when in reality, and I say this to all of my couples, relationships are hard. Nobody teaches us how to communicate. I mean, people who are listening right now, think of, think of one course that you've taken on communication. Most of us have not taken it on how to express feelings from that I position. I feel, I feel sad when you do this and what I need being able to be assertive rather than passive aggressive or aggressive. We don't take these courses. And what happens is that we don't share our feelings and needs. And that later on goes on to build resentment. And yeah, this is, this is one of the key reasons why I created my online program, Be Connected, because I just kept seeing so many women specifically struggling to share their feelings and their needs. And I can even think of this one mother specifically in in the program who very commonly had high expectations and thought, you know, here I am being mom, I have to do everything and put aside my needs and feelings and resentment continued to build. And it was incredibly powerful when she was able to say to her partner one day, I need time for me. I need to take this time for me. And when her partner initially fought up against that and tried to make it about their own time, she changed how she responded to him And then he was able to see, oh, you do have this here. 
And I think sometimes as mothers, as women, we put that expectation on ourselves that we should just be able to do it all. And in reality, we can't. No, we can't. And there's, there's that myth that, you know, a friend of mine, Annie Hayes, has written a great book called The Supermom Myth. Mm. And I think that's so pervasive that, you know, men are daddy daycare, men are emotionally closed off and, you know, have no feelings. And women are capable of doing it all and juggling all this mental load and being supermums. And I think those two myths need to just really go and do one because it's not helping anyone. It's not helping women. It's not helping men. And moving towards a place where we can gently change, but asking for our needs to be met. And that, that's really, really hard because a lot of the women I work with, who are probably more of the, the anxiously attached styles, um, actually really struggle to express their needs. It doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. They may not even know what their needs are and they might not have reflected on that. So it's really difficult. The other piece there is the the common expression of, well, my partner doesn't hear them or they don't respond to them. And so oftentimes what I hear many people saying is, well, I'm just not going to express them. But that also doesn't lead to any kind of change in our relationship. If we just push them down and bottle them up, then we're not building a healthy relationship. No. And I guess to me, the clue is there, right? you know, if you repeatedly, consistently, and in, in actually a way of expressing yourself that your partner can hear and they repeatedly do not respond, I guess that brings me to one of the questions of, you know, actually, when is it better for a couple to go separate ways? When is it more compassionate to realize that my needs aren't met whatsoever, despite our met, our best efforts, despite perhaps even couples therapy, uh-huh. and actually they're routinely not responding to my needs? You know, what would you say to the listeners about whether or not it's most compassionate to leave a relationship? How do we know when it's time to call it quits? Uh, it, it's such a hard question, and it's so... Uh, on an individual decision. And, you know, I was talking with someone else recently about this, that we we can do three things in a relationship. One is we can accept the other person. And again, that depends on what you're accepting. So you can accept the other person. The other one is you can do all of the work and you can try to change. Maybe your partner's on board, maybe not. Or then the third choice is you leave. And so the first thing we must acknowledge in this kind of discussion is what are some things that we can accept about our partners? So we all have a fundamental need to feel emotionally seen and close. So we do need to learn and we can do that. We can go to couples therapy. We can read the books. We can also work on ourselves of how we communicate things and try to get that from our partners. And we know that when one person changes, the other person over time will change as well. I think that's really important to emphasize that if I start to say, hey, you know what? I'm really critical to my partner around how I try to get help here. So I'm going to shift and I'm going to start doing this more like a team and I'm going to maybe, you know, sit the table together and we can list out all the things that need to get done and we can start negotiating and compromising around that. That would be me showing up differently and changing that in the relationship. When it comes to the emotional expression, I'm coming to my partner. Can they respond to me at some degree? But ultimately the acceptance piece here is that, you know, I I accept that my partner does not emote the same way that I do. And he doesn't process externally like I do. And will he ever be the same as me in that sense? No. But can we find a way to make that work still? And yes, absolutely, we can. So what you were saying earlier, Michaela, of that, you know, is it possible that our partner meets all of our needs? No. And that's why some people choose to go to therapy. And that's the ultimate experience of validation and being seen, right? Some people choose to develop their friend networks as well as another way of feeling that emotional connection. 
So there's that acceptance piece, changing and seeing what you can do differently. But then ultimately, if you are deciding to leave, I mean, one of the most important things to consider is the emotional and physical abuse, that if a relationship is not safe and you're staying, you want to ask yourself, what's keeping me here? And if it's fear, then I would encourage you to definitely do some work around that because fear stops us from doing so much. But ultimately, this is this is your life that you get to live. And anytime a woman in my Instagram community asks, I have these Q&A polls on Saturdays, and someone will say, do you feel guilty for leaving your partner with kids? And I will ask the community, what words would you say to this mother right now? And the, the support just pours in and says, you know, your, your child will thank you later on. They need to see what a healthy relationship looks like. You can do this on your own. Like just a lot of validation and support. So if we're staying in a fear, that's usually not a good reason to fear. And oftentimes when it comes to separating our ways, we need to look at what are our fundamental differences. And that really comes down to our values. So for example, if you enter into a relationship and you thought you were both going to have children together, it's really important for you to have a child. And then your partner puts it off, puts it off, and then says, actually, I don't want a child. How do you come to compromise that important value? I would argue that you can't because you would be giving up too much of yourself around that. Hmm. It's a deal breaker. It's a deal breaker. Or another one might be the one partner wanting to have an open relationship, but that's not something you want. So that could be another deal breaker. So it comes back to our values. Like, are some of our values aligned? And, and sometimes there are other things that couples can compromise around. So for example, I can think of one couple I worked with with different sexual proclivities. And one partner said, that is just not something that I can do. And the other partner said, okay, I can accept that and move closer towards what it is that feels good for you. And we can find this space. I didn't say this earlier, but I always love to say this, is that when it comes to our relationships, you are neither right nor wrong. But what is important in your relationship is being able to validate each other, seeing that the other person has their own needs and experiences, their own feelings, um, and also finding a way to co-create your worlds together. So again, with my partner, our emotional attunement skills, they're different. I've Over time, I've helped him learn to see how he can validate me, how he can see my emotions. But ultimately, he's not going to go into the, you know, this happened and then here I felt and it led to all of these other things. That's just not how he processes. So I accept that about him and we find a way of making that work together. Hmm. But you, the key word there, Tracy, I think is you're saying over time that we actually do need to tolerate these almost like calibrations constantly in our relationship, yeah. getting I it wrong, learning from it, calibrating. Okay, so that yeah. did not work out. I read somewhere that, you know, the first three years of relationships life, you have all the fights you're going to have and that you repeat them afterwards. <laughs> so, so I was talking about with my husband, like, I often talk about sort of, the, you know, the hat track of 2014, you know, where we kind of were, I was up all night, even sort of huffing and puffing and sleeping on the sofa because of what height the hat rack was going to put, be put up on. So, you know, <laughs> the ridiculousness of certain things. And it's always about what that symbolizes, what meaning yeah. lies underneath that. And it's about how, is it possible for a reaching a, a compromise here? Is there any kind of a common middle ground or is it a non-negotiable? Like you're, uh -huh. you know, talking about the different sexual preferences or, how open or close we want a relationship, maybe that is actually non-negotiable. Maybe that's not possible to reach a compromise. You can't have right. half a child. It's, you know, either do we have children or we don't. And it's something we have to make willingly rather than feeling that it becomes a sacrifice. So a compromise right. is not a sacrifice of your needs and leaving your needs being really unmet. So 
been really, really helpful to think of that together. That is such an important difference there is compromising is not the same as sacrificing. Those are two different things. And mm. that research actually shows that when partners sacrifice, they have negative evaluations towards their partner afterwards. And so yes. we often think that we sacrifice because we're doing something better for the relationship. But if you're going to have negative feelings towards your partner after, then that truly isn't something that's positive for your relationship. So then how can we compromise? And one of the most important things there is being able to have a dialogue, not shutting each other down, but talking about things from a position of being curious. What's important about that to you? What does it remind you of? What are you afraid might happen if you, you know, for example, parent this way? You know, where's your wiggle room? Where are your areas of compromise on this? And then here's my experience of this. And that we are constantly trying to be curious with our partners. And you're absolutely right, Michaela, that we will continue to have the same set of problems for 5, 10, 20 years into our relationships because they are repeating things. It's not necessarily a deal breaker. And it's this beautiful analogy one of my couples left me with through our work. And it, it was the idea that, and interestingly, the, the partner who said that was more avoidant and resistant to coming to therapy said, I get it. It's like we're two stones continuing to hit against each other over the years until we become smooth edges. Mm, that's beautiful, isn't it? Actually, it's that constant rubbing down of each other and finding a rhythm that way. This has been really, really helpful, Tracy. I think, I mean, Everything you're talking about fits really well with sort of within the pause purpose play ethos of how we need to pause, need to stand back from what's going on, need to be able to observe in the moment if we can. And if we can't do that, if we're too reactive, too triggered, pausing afterwards and re mm. reflecting afterwards, what happened here? What can we learn? Yes. That's really hard to do if we don't pause. So I'm going to ask you just a final couple of questions that we ask everyone on the show because pause purpose play runs through this. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you with all the successes you've had? I mean, you've got a fantastic Instagram community uh, under Dr. Tracy and you got a you know a thriving healthy online business as well as your your uh, couples therapy stuff. How do you pause and switch off? Such a big question, <laughs> and I love it. Um, uh, my moments of pause are really about micro moments in my day. I have really learned the power of my breath, and if I can learn it throughout the day, it also reminds me that I can do it in tough moments with my partner. So pausing means sometimes I, I just recently bought a, a rebounder. It's a mini trampoline for my office. So instead of just staying in my chair and going session to session to session, I get up now and I'm going to jump on the trampoline, which is also incredibly good for our nervous systems. I prioritize my time for me, uh, making sure that I do something that you know, initially when I started my podcast in 2019, I thought that was me trying to pause and play. And while it is, it was also continuing to feed the creative side of me, the doing side of me. And I needed to find this other side that allowed me to just be. And that for me lately has been around, well, I mean, I guess this goes a little bit more into playing as well too, but, you know, pausing is when I'm with my kids, not having my phone near me. And when I'm drinking my coffee, just noticing the warmth that I experience with it or waking up 10 minutes early that I'm stretching on in the dark living room rather than being on my phone and just 
tuning into my breath. It always comes back to my breath. And that is something that is so grounding for me, even though the days are busy and the days are long. Mm, Absolutely. So something about choosing what you disconnect from and what you connect to. So disconnecting from your phone is something that every single person I think Mm. I've connected with has said that actually it's just, I'm so busy. I'm doing mindless things, scrolling. And that trampoline, I want that trampoline, Tracy. I'm going to have to ask you for the details. (laughs) I just just see myself that it's like you connecting with the present moment, but also being so playful, just bouncing up and down. It's just going to be so good on so many levels. So I love that for playfulness as well, that, you know, you do so many things that are connected to your purpose and for someone who is ambitious and very successful I can really resonate and see that in you that you also do need to balance that with Mm -hmm. things that are just about being and not about the doing so thank you so much for sharing that very sort of honestly and and vulnerably so as we're drawing things to a close I just want to ask you one thing the one tangible takeaway you want to give to the listeners and I often ask them to either kind of give a permission to the listeners or a pressure to take off them? What would that be? You know, thinking about the space of perfectionism, one of the things I'd want to say is you are not meant to be perfect in your relationship. And that showing up imperfectly is so incredibly important. When you can go inside yourself and slow down those really hard moments and sit with those hard feelings to get to know them for yourself, that's incredibly powerful. And that you can also show that to your partner, take those risks and know that it doesn't have to be perfect. It can be messy. And if it doesn't work out the first time, you can go back another time. And remembering that that vulnerability ultimately brings us closer to the other person and can be incredibly healing. And with that, I would say, be curious. Just allow yourself to be curious with with everything about yourself, but then also with your partner. It's amazing. So the permission to be curious, permission to be imperfect, and permission to be vulnerable, to Mm -hmm. connect more deeply with your partner. This has been really, really helpful, Tracy. So thank you so much for your time. And I will make sure that I'll put all your links in the show notes as well, because you have such a beautiful Instagram community under Dr. Tracy. So anyone can come along and um, connect with you there as well and put your website and your your fantastic be connected community as well so i'll put all of that on there and thank you so much again for coming along thank you so much michaela i am just so honored to be able to sit with you and have such an important conversation here with you and with your community thank you for staying with me to the end of this episode my dear friend for tuning in to another really deep meaningful conversation i've had with another clinical professional Dr. Tracy and I are connected through Instagram and I just love our chats about couples. And if you want to do a deeper dive, go and follow her and find her community there. So thank you for staying with us to the end. And I hope you've learned new things from the research findings, the clinical experiences and the quite helpful metaphors that Tracy has um, shown you today in our episode. If you want to take a deeper dive and learn more about couples relationships and you haven't already pre-ordered my upcoming book, The Lasting Connection, please go and have a look at that now. It's about how you can develop more love and compassion, not just for your partner, but also for yourself. Because as Dr. Tracy talked about today, doing that inner work, it begins with you. And even if your partner doesn't change anything to begin with, you need to make that switch. And learning to practice these things, learning to develop skills in compassion can also help you to communicate more effectively with your partner, becoming less critical, both of yourself, but also of the person you love. 
And that may well have that boomerang effect where it ripples out into your relationship and your partner feels like making the same shift. Go and have a look at The Lasting Connection right now on Amazon and do let me know what you think of this episode. Feel free to rate and review and let us know what you think. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's gonna help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.